0: a song of ascents of David, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured down on the the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord was bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. A song of ascents. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that in it you show us who you are and what you're about, and so you give us insight into who we are in you. Make the Lord Jesus Christ big in our imaginations through what we hear proclaimed here, and transform our hearts to be more like Him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've talked about this summer that the the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134, are like a playlist in the middle Bible. They were specifically songs that were gathered together and sung by pilgrims that were traveling to Jerusalem for one of the pilgrimage festivals. Three times out of the year, everybody in Israel would stop what they were doing, businesses shut down. It's kind of kind of like a Labor Day, except for everything was closed. <laughs> And folks would travel to Jerusalem. And when they got there to the temple, they would participate in worship. They would be swept up into the story of God's redemption. They would hear about the grace of God and they would worship and celebrate. Well, these Psalms, Psalms 120 to 134, were specifically for the people who were traveling to Jerusalem for these festivals. If you've ever made a playlist or if you made mixtapes, I'm dating myself a little bit, or whatever, (laughs) at any time, you know if you ever sit down to do it that often the last song or the last couple songs on a playlist are the most important. They're the ones that are gonna wrap it up. The first one's important because it sets the tone. The last song, you think about it for a while, particularly if you're making a playlist that you're gonna send to someone else. I used to send uh, mixtapes to Angela when we were dating, we had a long distance relationship and poor post office had to figure out what that was, I'm sure and I'd just stick a cassette in and just send it off but I would sit down and think about these places, what was going to be first, what was in the middle what was going to be last, because in my mind she's, I apparently had nothing else to do but sit in her room and listen to her tape all the way through, right? Anyway, the last song would be the last word the final note What you want to leave off with. Well, that's what Psalms 133 and 134 are for the Psalms Descent. This was a playlist for travelers, yes, who were traveling to Jerusalem. But there was a deeper meaning in these Psalms. They weren't just helping travelers get from one physical location to the next. The deeper meaning of the Psalms is that we're all on a journey. For following after God, we are ascending, not just to Jerusalem, yes, a city on a hill. We are ascending further and further into God in our journey home to Him. And as we've gone through the Psalms of Ascent, we've heard a bunch of different things about traveling in this world. We've heard about what to do with our righteous anger when we see wrong being done or wrong is done to us. We've heard about what to do with our fears. We've heard about what to do when we really mess things up, about what it means to journey in wisdom, value what God values. But these last two songs, they're a reminder before the playlist is over of what is most important in our journey. That's our relationships with others and our relationship with God. So let's talk about that a little bit. Talk about this unity that exists for the journey and looking First at Psalm 133 and 134. Um, and our first section is going to be called Traveling Together. One of the ways we can ensure that our journey in this world will end in despair is to try and take this journey alone. Following this pathway home to God is not a solo journey. It's not, period. You know, in our world, I think we tend to treat religion like an individualized, private thing. Just Jesus and me. We kind of have it bracketed off. After all, what do we say? We never talk about what in polite company, politics and religion. We bracket that off. But human beings at our core, we're social creatures. We're meant to be in relationship with one another. It's part of who we are, the essence of what it means to be a human being. And if the work of God is to restore everything that's been lost according to sin, and it is... Then that means that part of God's renewal of us is that we are turned from our suffocating individualism to one another. We are turned from our loneliness to a place where we can travel together because we are meant to travel together. We are not alone. In fact, let's stop and say that. I usually don't like when preachers do this, but let's say that together. We are not alone. We are not alone. That's the good news of a new community. i print it every week in the bulletin. We have it up here. Good news for the city. Good news of a new community. That we are imperfect people joined together for worship, love, and the good of our neighbors. Because part of the gospel is that God disrupts the loneliness of our world to reconcile us to one another in his kingdom. As we talk about in 1 uh, Peter chapter 2 in our call to worship, we were once not a people, But now, together, in Christ, we are the people of God. God disrupts the loneliness of our world to reconcile us to one another. And the church is a multinational reality. It's a nation without borders and without politicians, to quote the great theologian Switchfoot, That doesn't mean, of course, that the institutional church and our experience of what church is doesn't sometimes look like it's a home for people trying to build a name for themselves. Playing political games Or trying to gain power That's the tragedy what's passed for church For so many But that is not what God is at work In our world to make happen Jesus did not die to rescue his people So that we would be ruled over By men and women hungry for power And prestige. That is not part of his redemption What God has been at work to do Is to bring us together with people Who are very different from one another To dwell in a supernatural unity. A unity that only he could bring. Psalm 133 points to this. Now this song was most likely likely written by King David. Sometime after he had brought unity to the the kingdom of Israel. Now I I don't want to dig up too much into the back history. But seven years leading up to the moment of David ruling over all of Israel. All twelve tribes. David had ruled over the southern two tribes. And for those seven years, he had been at war. He was trying to bring unity to the tribes who shared a history, who shared a background, who shared a God. He was trying to bring unity, but he had faced opposition from other potential kings that had ruled the northern ten kings. And so this moment when he becomes king over all twelve tribes is a significant one. I think that's what he's writing about When he wrote Psalm 133. But notice what he writes about in Psalm 133. Because in political terms, background wise, David has won. David is victorious. But what do we see here in Psalm 133? He does not seek revenge. And he doesn't gloat. In political sense, he's won. He's beaten out the people who are so-called enemies. But in Psalm 133, he celebrates the northern tribe. He celebrates the people who, on paper, were his supposed enemies. And he celebrates this new unity by recognizing they are better together than they were apart. Let me explain. That's what's being emphasized in the images that he uses. As strange as they may sound to us, especially like the idea of oil running down a beard. And that's not the reason why I didn't shave this week. That was just happenstance. I can't grow a beard anyway. Um, But that's what's emphasized in the images. When David speaks about unity being like oil pouring down Aaron's beard, he is saying that what has happened in the union of the the people of God together with each other is a defined moment in God's purposes. The pouring of oil on Aaron's head, it was this moment of Aaron being set apart as the very first high priest of Israel. The high priest that was meant to represent God to the people in proclaiming his word. and proclaiming reconciliation through the sacrifices. The high priest that was in turn supposed to represent the people to God as well in prayers and in sacrifices. And the pouring of oil on Aaron's head, it was a symbol of God covering him and empowering him for that purpose. In the ancient world, oil was used to clean. It was used to make things smell pleasant. Oil was like an ointment on on wounds. The moment of Aaron being anointed in this way, with oil poured on his head, it was a huge one because it was God instituting a priest that would offer sacrifices for forgiveness of sins. The high priest was an object lesson of what God wanted to do with his people's sin, take it away. It was a big object lesson in the middle of the people's lives that this is what God is going to do with sin. He did not appoint an executioner. He appointed a high priest. God's intention is to take His people's sin away. So David speaks of this moment of the people being united together for the first time really as, as significant as the moment of Aaron being set apart for that purpose as high priest. That the union of God's people together is a realization of God's purposes, to join His people together as one. And that unity is like the oil that has set the people apart for their purposes to serve God and to serve others. Then he continues on with another image. He speaks about it in verse 3, as if the dew of Hermon was falling on Mount Zion. Now, a little geography will help us with this one. Mount Hermon, it was the northern boundary of the promised land. So if you were going to Israel and you wanted to go to the absolute, you wanted to go to the Canadian line, you went to Mount Hermon. That was the northern boundary, boundary line. Far, far in the north. And he speaks about Mount Zion. That's Jerusalem. Now that's about midways geographically for Israel uh, in the promised land, but the, Mount Zion was the most significant mountain in the south. So we've got two mountains here. The most important one in the north, the most important one in the south. Notice what David says. Notice what he says about it.
1: Now, Jerusalem was an arid
0: place. Not a lot of rain. Not a lot of rain at all. Its water source was the Jordan River and tributaries of the Jordan River. But Mount Hermon, far in the north, was lush water would fall on it. And the springs at the bottom of Mount Hermon were the, were the headwaters for the Jordan River that ran through all of Israel. Mount Hermon was a place with, with, with dew that would cover the mountain. That didn't happen in Jerusalem. Very arid place, like I said. What David is saying here is that the north, Mount Hermon, these northern tribes are now the unexpected and supernatural refreshing that Zion and the Southern tribes need. That the North is better with the South and vice versa. That this unity will mean a new flourishing. Now, I want to step aside and point out again how remarkable this is. David's from the South. That's his people. That's where he has ruled. The North has been his enemies. But what he says here is that the north and the south joined together. These northern tribes and southern tribes that had been at war with each other now joined together as one. This will mean a new flourishing that he couldn't have experienced otherwise. That the southern tribes could not have experienced otherwise. That Zion, the place where God says he puts his name, where the temple is, is going to experience a flourishing through this unity that they would not have otherwise. So what's going on here is David is celebrating this unity because it is a significant thing. It's not just a byproduct of God's work. It is part of God's redemptive work to join His people together as one. But where does this unity come from? Is it just the unity of an institution? No, it's a unity that is firmly rooted in another kind of unity. A unity rooted in reconciliation with God. And that's where it turns next. Both of these psalms emphasize unity, but they're very clear about where this unity comes from. It comes from God, first and foremost. It's rooted in His grace. That's what it means when it speaks of God blessing from Zion in verse 3 of both of the psalms. I've said it before, but Zion was the poetic name for Jerusalem. It pointed to its significance in the Old Testament as God's throne. Now, there wasn't something inherently special about Jerusalem. There wasn't. You don't need to take a pilgrimage there to have a deeper spiritual life in the here and now. That's good news. It's, it's not cheap to fly to, uh, to, to Jerusalem. There wasn't something inherently special about this place. But the point was that this is where God had established ground zero for His work of redemption. This was God's headquarters for making all things new. Now, at the time this song was written, the singers would have known that Jerusalem was important. They'd been told this was the place where God would fulfill His promises. But they didn't know how it would all play out. God told them But they could not have guessed, I don't think, how it would play out in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who I remind you, was crucified in Jerusalem. Jesus, who I remind you, who was raised from the dead in Jerusalem. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was the defining moment in human history. This was God intervening through sending His Son, completing what all the sacrifices and forms of the Old Testament had symbolized. It wasn't just the unity of an institution. It wasn't just the unity under the king of like King David, which you know lasted two generations. It was God winning something that would not ebb and flow with the whims of human uh, history. In Jesus, we win a perfect high priest. We spoke about it in Hebrews chapter. Or we spoke about it in Hebrews chapter seven. The failure of the high priests, even the good ones, was that they died, and that they were sinful too. High priest would need to offer uh, sacrifices for his own sins, and then in turn offer sacrifices for the people. And even if he was a good high priest, you have got a couple decades at this, and who knows what the next high priest is going to be like? It was so tenuous. It was so frail, in a sense. But in Jesus, we get a perfect high priest who always lives, who will never pass away. And so the unity, his, his, his work of being our mediator never passes away. The perfection of his priesthood and representing God to us and us to God will never end. He's the perfect high priest. He perfectly represents God to us. And he perfectly represents us to God. And his sacrifice, as it said, was once for all. It doesn't need to happen over and over and over again. Because it was a sacrifice with the power to take away our sins finally and truly. He's reconciled us to God, bringing us a unity there. And that unity is the bedrock, is the foundation of any unity we have with one another. We receive the benefits of this by faith. We depend on his finished work for us instead of our own power. And by faith, we are united not just to Jesus, but to all who are united to him by faith. And this unity that we share with others who have experienced the forgiveness of sins, this unity that we share with others who have placed their faith in Jesus, this is a deeper bond than politics or nationality or genetics or anything else. Because we have been won by grace. We've been brought into a kingdom of light where our only true priest is Jesus. Where our relationship with God is defined by Him, not by human leaders that can fall short. In the kingdom of God, we are given a basis for worthiness that is not our bank account or our desires and our likes. We throw ourselves and fling ourselves on the sure mercy of God in Christ. And that's the foundation always. This reality that we have not made happen, this home that now belongs to us, where is it lived out? Where do we see it? It's designed to be lived out in the local church. It's designed to be experienced and to lived out, be lived out in local churches in actual relationships with one another. The local church is not always a safe place or local churches. They fall short. But the local church, these true relationships with one another, this is the place where we are to experience, to live out, and to show the unity that has been won for us in Christ. And in the local church, there is leadership. We're talking about priests and the high priests. Yeah, the local church has leadership. But it is, at best, temporary leadership. Here's what I mean. I'm the pastor. I've been ordained. I've been set apart and called to this work. And I hope it is for the rest of my life, and I live a long time. That is my desire. But I have not been given some authority to be used whichever way I want. I'm someone with a very narrow sliver of gifts and a calling from God just like you. The way that you are going to live your gifts out and your calling is going to look different than me. The majority of us in here are not ever going to be called to be official leaders in the church. But that doesn't mean that my life and calling are ideal. It doesn't mean that yours are lesser just because I am a pastor. The local church doesn't exist to give me a job and a paycheck and a place to preach. I have this role for the next however many years that Jesus gives me to follow him in loving you and loving done as a pastor. My job is not, uh, and my calling is not to build a platform or to gain followers or to beat people into submission. The church isn't mine. Or it's mine in the same way that it's yours by grace. I've been brought in by our great shepherd, Jesus, but I don't have a special priesthood that gives me special access to God that you don't have. In a sense, we've all been made priests under Jesus, not just the professional Christians. And, that's, and I'm making this point because there's a danger when we read Psalm 134, the last three verses here. It is speaking specifically about things that priests do. It's speaking about priests. And we might tune it out and say, well, there's a special blessing there. But Scripture tells us that we are a kingdom of priests. We are a kingdom of priests. This psalm is talking about priests. Notice it talks about the priests who draw the short straw and have to work what we would call the third shift. They're working at night. And it speaks of those who lift their hands in the sanctuary. This would be the priest lifting either the offering up to God or lifting his hands to bless the people in a benediction. But in Jesus we've become a kingdom of priests and we're called to represent God to those around us. When we pray for others, we're living that out. When we serve others, we're living that out. When we encourage one another, we're living that out. When we show up into this room on Sundays, we are living that out, whether we realize it or not. In Christ, we're assured that we may be, we may feel like we're working the graveyard shift. These priests here, (laughs) that we're doing their work by night, nobody sees it, unseen by anyone, and seemingly forgotten. But we are not forgotten. We may serve in ways that we don't tell anybody else about. We may serve in ways that nobody else sees. We may serve people who can't say thank you and don't know how. But we are not forgotten. God sees our sacrifices, He hears our prayers, He attends to the groaning of our hearts, and He assures us that nothing we entrust to Him is lost. And that He will do right by His grace. Not giving us what we've earned. Not giving us a paycheck, but rewarding us in Christ. In other words, He will give us grace. And He will crown that grace with more grace. Because grace by nature abounds and abounds forever. And out of that, we are called together as a community of priests... To live a new way of life. And that's where I want to leave us today with this thought. Living a life with open hands. Living a life with open hands. Priests in the Old Testament lived a whole lot of their life with open hands. Priests didn't have any land of their own. They lived on the generosity of other people, giving to them. Priests, when they offered sacrifices, offered it up with open hands. When they proclaimed blessing on other people, they did it with open hands. They lived a life where so often, if they were following what God had for them, they were opening their hands to either receive or to bless. And that's what we're called to today. That the life of faith, that the journey that we are taking in this world, is a journey lived with open hands. Now this is utterly unlike what we would seek after if God's grace were not at work in us. If the truth of God's grace were not true, and if it were not true that we're united to others by grace, I think we would live lives with closed fists. We would live lives with high walls to bar anybody out. We would seek to grab all that we can and never let it go We would seek to wall ourselves off in fear that at any moment the things we treasure the most will be taken away. But in God, we can live a vulnerable life with open hands. We can hold all things lightly. We can have our hands quick to let go of what's in them. We can live lives... With hands lifted and open to bless, like the priest would bless, we can live open hands, ready to not just give. The good news of an open hand is it is always ready to receive as well. With our hands lifted to God, we can know He will never feel, fail to bring what He has for us. We don't have to grasp hold of everything as if our own strength and power is holding on to it. We don't have to walk through as if the strength of our grip is the thing that is holding us on. And we don't have to grasp hold of what we have as if uh, we, if we open our hands, we will lose it all. We can live with generosity. and importance. We can live as a blessing to others with open hands. And living this open-handed life is not going to be easy. We'll do it together. But it feels vulnerable, vulnerable because it is. But as we pursue living in unity with our sisters and brothers in Christ, let's remember that it's not a unity that we make happen. It's a reflection of a reality that Jesus died to make happen. And this union we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's one that we were created for. It's one that we have been redeemed for. It is one that we are destined for. So live with open hands and don't be fearful in doing it. God will not fail us. And let's lean into what God has brought us to, the supernatural unity. Let's live lives together. Let's lean upon one another. Let's speak grace and truth to one another. And watch the garden of God's grace grow right here in God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for your word. And I thank you for your grace. I thank you for this unity that you have brought us together to reflect. This reconciliation with you through Christ. That we may know you are ours and we are yours. And that be the bedrock of everything else. So I pray, Lord, as we lean in on this life of living reconciled to one another, this life of living with an open hand, That you would show yourself time and time again as the God who provides. Time and time again as the God who carries us, who loves us, who is leading us home. Teach us to trust in you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.